Thanks, Murray. We are looking at the book of James right now, so uh, if you'll open your Bibles, I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. This is the word of the Lord. It is an honor for me to preach here at First Presbyterian Amarillo. I have known Howard Murray for a long time, especially Murray, who's kept me updated on this congregation since he's been here for 31 years. I'm sure you know that. Uh, they have both told me the results of a survey that was conducted by the Willow Creek Association that has listed this congregation in the top two of American churches whose members study Scripture on their own and for their Bible literacy. And you're to be committed for that achievement. And I'll check you in a little bit because I may ask you a question or two, and I'll expect some kind of a response. <clears throat> now, I don't know if there's a connection between biblical literacy and the speed with which sermons are delivered here, but I do know that Howard and Murray are two of the fastest-talking people I've ever met in my life, and here they are on the same pastoral staff together. Truly, Howard, Murray, and Kim are, are men of God, as you know, and what a blessing it is for this congregation to have them. You're in a sermon series with the, in the book of James, and today we look at James 2. And the title for this sermon is Grace. The author of these verses is James, who's the half-brother of Jesus. And James would become the very first leader of the Jerusalem church and wrote this epistle just a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you happen to be new reading the scriptures, just to be clear, the epistles are not the wives of the apostles. It's good just to get that cleared up right now in case anybody has any vagueness about that. The epistles are letters written by believers to believers in the New Testament. In these verses, James is discussing the relationship between faith and works, and it's important discussion because it has to do with our salvation. Faith in Christ is a key doctrine for believers. The sinner is saved by faith, then they walk by faith, because without faith it is impossible 
to please God. Now, someone has said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but rather faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. And there are millions of Christ followers who have lived according to God's word, no matter the price, and many throughout the world who've had to pay the ultimate price for that belief. Faith is not some kind of feeling that we have to work up like drinking a triple espresso before you go into competition. No, faith is confidence that God's word is true, and then we act on that conviction, which brings pleasure to God and joy to us. So it's a wonderful relationship. Now, for 2,000 years, people have been asking questions like, what kind of faith saves a person? Is it necessary to do good works in order to be saved? How can a person know if they have saving faith? Those are all good questions, and James answers those questions by explaining there are three kinds of faith, but two of them are false faith, and only one of them is saving faith. So let's look at this. And if you happen to be taking notes, Roman numeral one, the first kind of false faith, James calls dead faith. James describes a person with dead faith in the first four verses of chapter two as someone who will say pleasant words to someone who needs their help, but they have no intention of helping that person. James uses the example of someone who claims to be a believer, and they say someone to they see someone who's hungry, poorly clothed, and clearly in desperate need. The false believer intellectually understands the situation yet does nothing to help them, but instead says something to them like, hope you get help, have a nice day, I'll have a good thought for you. And then they walk away from them. James says that someone like that who claims they believe but ignores the needs of others has a dead faith because it is based on knowledge but not on doing. One thing I've learned in life is that there's only way to know for certain whether someone truly believes what they say they believe. How do we know? How do we know that someone truly believes what they claim to believe? Watch their feet. Watch what they do. This is especially true in dating relationships, how one person will tell the other that they love them, but that will come out whether or not they prove that they love them. So whether or not it's true. And when someone says they love the Lord, if their behavior does not demonstrate it, then it's just words. It's not true faith. Roman numeral two, second kind of false faith James calls demonic faith. Now, it may surprise some people to know that demons have a kind of faith. What do they believe? Well, we see throughout the Gospels that demons intellectually believe in God and intellectually believe in the deity of Jesus. We see this when we read about demons oppressing people. And when Jesus is about to cast them out of someone, the demons acknowledge that Jesus has power over them. Check that on Mark, Mark chapter 5. They also acknowledge that Jesus can send them into the abyss. Check that out in Luke chapter 8. And when Jesus delivers numerous people from demons, they cry out, you are the Son of God. And look at that in Mark chapter 3. Now, that kind of faith appears to be real faith. Why? 
Well, not only do they academically acknowledge that Jesus is God, but they even have emotions that are stirred up. But what kind of emotions? Verse 19 says they believe and tremble in fear. Why do they tremble in fear? Because even though they intellectually and emotionally know who Jesus is, they do not put their faith in him, even though they know that their lack of trust in him will ultimately cost them everything. So to review, James is introduced to two kinds of false faith. First, there's the dead faith in which one claims to intellectually believe, but there's not emotion or good works to follow that claim. Second, there's the faith that's called demonic faith in which all demons and many people intellectually and emotionally believe in Jesus, but there's no changed life. There's no good works. Roman numeral three, the third kind of faith, according to James, is true and saving faith. Now, we call this dynamic faith. This is when the mind intellectually understands the truth, the heart feels the emotion, and good works are the result of that truth. Dynamic faith leads to transformation, a changed life, a new behavior that matches the faith that they profess. I'll give an example from my own life regarding this transformation. By the time I got into the sixth grade, I was the biggest kid in my school. If you'd asked me if I had faith in Christ, I would have said, sure, I think so. My mother said I do. But my behavior did not reflect the teachings of Jesus. Now, I got in trouble a lot in school. I mean, constantly, it's nothing that would send me to the juvenile detention center. It was just typical knucklehead things like talking too much, showing off as a class clown, getting attention as much as I can. And I never hit anybody, but since I was the biggest kid in school, when I walked down the hall, sometimes I would just sort of move people to the side. So I was considered to be a bully, terrible word now, but a bully by the teachers, even though I didn't think I was. Of course, I wish I'd received credit for time at the principal's office because I did a lot of that. But years later, my mother told me, and I can't believe she waited so many years, that when she and my father went to the parent-teacher meetings, the teacher would always say, Mr. and Mrs. Heddington, you seem like such lovely people. Um, what happened to your son, Greg? Here's the point, and I do have a point for mentioning my misspent youth. The next year when I was in seventh grade, I took a class at First Presbyterian Oklahoma City, called the confirmation class, I think you have this here, where you become a church member and publicly profess your faith. I think, um, think you, if you've taken the class, you'll remember. And I learned what it meant to truly believe in and follow Jesus. Now, it didn't happen all at once, but through the reading of Scripture, the Holy Spirit began to change my heart. Now, because we're all human, we all sin. So no one is sinless, but I learned one can sin less and be happier when they're yielded to the way the Lord would have us live. Through reading Scripture and my loving parents, the Holy Spirit transformed me into a kinder, more loving person. It was a kind of transformation that my parents had always prayed that I would have. And again, in spite of not living a sinless life, nor does one ever, my love for the Lord has continued to grow in my trust in Him. Because as you know, when you're on the road to faith, it is a lifelong process.
I know that uh, after hearing a lot of people's transformations and coming to Christ stories, there's a lot more dramatic ones, but that was my experience. And by the way, if you have a family member or a friend who's going down the wrong path, do not give up on them. Do not grow weary in your praying for them because none of us has the last word on anyone's life. No one of, none of us can write the last page on anyone's life because God is the only judge and God is still in the business of saving people. Even if there's two outs, two strikes in the bottom of the ninth. One example of that is my wife's mother was on her deathbed and my wife Carrie spoke the word of God to her and her mother prayed to receive Jesus just three minutes before she went into a coma from which she did not recover and soon died afterwards. We have faith that her mother is in the loving arms of the Lord and we'll see her one day. That's God's grace. So we're talking about true faith, dynamic faith that saves us. Roman numeral four, what about works? Can we be saved by doing enough good things? Can we earn it? Scripture is clear about this, and the answer is we cannot earn salvation. It cannot be done. It would be like trying our very best to throw a baseball from Amarillo to Dallas. I mean, it's not going to happen. A major leaguer may come in and may throw it a little bit further, but nobody's going to throw it all the way. It's impossible. Nobody's strong enough to do that. We cannot be saved by really trying hard. Faith plus works does not equal salvation. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace, and that's God's grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and not because of works, lest anyone should boast about how hard they've tried to earn it. Okay, then, what is James talking about when he uses the example of two very different people saved when they did good things, Abraham and Rahab? It's a good question, whoever might be asking that question. Abraham was a, our first spiritual father as the very first member of the Jewish race. And James says Abraham was justified. That is, he was made right with God, and it was not just because of his good works. Abraham was a very followed a very difficult command by God regarding his son. James says Abraham's obedience to that command proved that he was already saved. In fact, in James chapter 2 that we just read, verse 22, it says his faith was completed by his works. So when James says Abraham was justified by his works, it means his belief in God was validated by his behavior, but it does not mean he earned his salvation. He did not earn it any more than anybody like Abraham could throw a rock from Israel to Texas. It's not possible. Or by taking out the trash every day, which is not a bad thing to do. I don't dis discount that at all, especially Father's Day. The fathers still carry out the trash anyway, or they often do. At least they do in my house. But the point is, doing good things is good. It's wonderful. It's commendable. But we're never saved by doing those things. James then gives the example of Rahab, whom we might euphemistically describe as a, a woman of ill repute. Does that sound about right? That's what I was told 
by my pastor about who this woman was. A woman of ill repute. And she's the opposite of Abraham in every way possible, except the good deeds which God asked her specifically to do to prove her faith. And you can check that out in Joshua chapter 2. So Rahab demonstrates her faith in God when she hides the two spies of Israel and says to the men, this is powerful, she says this, the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. In other words, Rahab speaks of God as the only God and she proves her belief in God by risking her life by being obedient to doing what God wanted her to do for his kingdom by hiding the spies of Israel. But she did not earn her faith by trying to prove that she was worthy of God's grace. Now, I realize I'm preaching to the choir. In fact, a very biblical-oriented and learned congregation here when I talk about the fact that we cannot earn salvation by doing good works. But I know it's difficult for some people, this concept of you can't earn it by working really hard for the type A personalities. And I'll give you an example. Years ago, I led a Bible study for a football team called the Houston Oilers. And one of my friends recently said, well, I guess you didn't do a very good job because the Oilers are no longer in existence. Now, I don't take all the blame for that. Let me be clear about that. They did move to Tennessee, and now they're called the Tennessee Titans. Yes. Anyway, I didn't tell you'd be quizzed on sports, but that's okay. We'll get back to it. We'll do some scripture. One of the players for Houston was really good. I mean, he made the Pro Bowl 15 times at three different positions, and he was known for his hard work by his players. He's a Christ follower, and, but one day he came up to me during his playing days and said, you know, every day out the, the, on the field, I am just busting it. I mean, I'm giving it everything I've got. I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but God's grace is something that's not always easy for me to understand. I mean, I want to work to prove myself that I am worthy for God because that's what I do in football. I have to prove myself every day. Now, in my better moments, I know it's about what Jesus did on the cross before I was born. That was such a good statement. All I could say was, yes, yes. That's why they call it amazing grace. As for good works, I think it's wise that we periodically check ourselves and say, would there be, would anyone know that I'm a follower of Jesus if I didn't say it? Would they know just by my behavior? So let's talk about another issue regarding salvation. Roman numeral 5, what about eternal salvation? In other words, can someone lose their salvation? Many of us have thought about that at some point. Here's a one-line answer that I think is helpful in my understanding. So it's actually a two-liner, so it has two sentences. So here it is. We cannot earn salvation. Therefore, we cannot lose it since we did not earn it. Let me say this again. We cannot earn salvation. Therefore, we cannot lose it since we did not earn it. Salvation is a gift. It's grace. Okay, now some Bible questions. Ready? The New Testament was originally written in what language? Greek, anybody? Old Testament, that's close. Old Testament was Hebrew. New Testament was Greek. Yes. And the original Greek word for the word grace is charis. 
And we use that as the root word for charismatic, somebody who is charismatic, they're vibrant, full of life, the kind of person we wanted to party, at least for a while. So that's grace. So the word for grace in Greek is charis, but charis also has another meaning. It also means surprise gift. Now, when someone gives you something nice that you did not expect and something you certainly didn't earn, it's what? It's a surprise gift. And that's the word for grace. And the cross, of course, was the greatest surprise gift of all. So we all know we cannot earn salvation by doing good works. We receive salvation by the grace of Jesus, by his surprise gift. And one of my favorite definitions of grace is this. Grace is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let me say that again. Grace is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And what did God do for us? I think Romans 5, 8 says it the best. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Roman numeral six, suppose we don't feel like we're doing enough to please God. Someone might be thinking, I know it's supposed to be a joy to do good things for the Lord and uh, because he's done so much for me and, and I do trust Jesus, but sometimes I get a little worried that I'm not doing enough to show my love. In other words, I don't think I love God enough. Has anybody ever felt that way? I mean, if you have, here's a response. The issue is not that you don't love God enough. The issue is you don't understand how much God loves you. If we truly understood how much God loves us, then we can't help but love him. It's not a duty. It becomes a joy. Wouldn't it be overwhelmingly, wouldn't you be overwhelmingly grateful if somebody died for you? I mean, not just theoretically, not as an idea. If somebody died for you, well, that happened. As the hymn says, Jesus gave his all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. I heard somebody humming that. What? Jesus gave it everything. He gave us everything he has. And yet, and he's washed our sins. He's forgiven us. No one could do that. What a surprise gift. We didn't ask for it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we embrace the kind of love that Jesus showed us and we love him back, that is called praise. And when we live a life of praise, we are constantly giving thanks. Whether we are working at our work or talking with people or doing something we enjoy, we are praising God with the way that we live out our gratitude for him. What's the definition of grace? Well, praise can be simply giving credit to whom credit is due. Praise is simply giving credit to whom credit is due. Now, what about bad things happening? We're guaranteed by Jesus bad things are going to happen to us. It, it says this in the Scripture. And we're always going to happen. Well, we live in a fallen world. There's always going to be sin until we die. It's just the way it's going to be. Johnny Erickson, though, was a story that I remember because she was a 17-year-old girl who was a great athlete, dove into a lake. The lake was more shallow than she thought. She became a quadriplegic, and for the last 55 years, she has been a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. She can't move her arms or legs. She can only move her mouth. Johnny Erickson said this, 
Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. In conclusion, we've looked at several lessons, uh, issues, and things today about the... So let's just talk about the ultimate question. Let's just get to it. Why were we created? We were created by God so he could love us. He thought us up in his infinite mind and formed us in our mother's womb so he could love us. It's not that he just wanted another human. He wanted you to know him so you could love him. It's very personal. God did not make you. Just not make you up out of, out of a mass of people. He created you because he wanted you to exist and to love him. And that's grace. That's the surprise joy. Christ died for you, and that fact should evoke the deepest sense of gratitude from our souls. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's workmanship. Another Greek word. That word poema is workmanship in Greek. It's where we get our word poem. We are God's poem. We are his, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should do them. Salvation is not based on good works, but good works emanate naturally out of our gratitude for our love for him. When we really understand how much God loves us, then our works occur naturally, just like a little child who's happy just naturally laughs. God, God works in our lives to give us this love, and God is so pleased when we admit that we desperately know him because we know we cannot rely on anyone or anything else for our ultimate purpose. And even when we get off the path in life, as we sometimes do, and we fail to living up to our best intentions, we ask forgiveness. And as the scripture was led earlier, read earlier, First John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's God's grace. And what is grace? Grace is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Amen.